Is your daily grind getting you down? A Thermospas hot tub may be the solution. Just a few minutes under those powerful, soothing jets, and all your stress seems to melt away, like you're lying on a cloud of bubbles. You'll not only feel better, but sleep better, too. Call 877-861-4672 now. And for a limited time, save $1,250. Call 877-861-4672 or visit thermospas.com to schedule a free on-site assessment. This podcast may discuss topics graphic in nature and possibly triggering to survivors. We value the safety and well-being of all of our listeners. So please practice personal discretion. Now, enjoy the show. Hey, I'm Paige. And I'm Natalie. We're the hosts of the Murder Diaries podcast. We bonded over tacos and true crime after we matched on Bumble BFF. You know, like any normal millennial using an app to meet new friends. Every Thursday, we upload a new episode. In each episode of The Murder Diaries, we tell true crime one story at a time. One week, it's my turn. And the next week, it's mine. You still think it's in my head, but I'm walking with the dead. Listen, we never know how to start when we have things to say before we actually get into the episode, so... Here we are. Uh, But what we are really excited to tell you guys is that we have extended the deadline for Pride March. It's gone really well. Thank you, everybody, for your support. If you already have bought your Pride March, but like I said, we're extending. You will be able to buy your Pride March at the Murder Diaries podcast.com until the end of the day, July 4th. That's 11.59 p.m., guys. Yeah, 11.59 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. Now, when I tell you that the victim in this case was a total musical badass, I mean it. In 1993, 27-year-old musician and the GITS frontwoman Mia Zapata left her friend's apartment around 2 a.m. An hour later, her body was found. She had been murdered. The drawstrings from her own band sweatshirt had been used to strangle her. It would take over a decade before Mia would receive justice. This is her story. Mia Catherine Zapata was born August 25th, 1965 in Chicago. However, she was raised in Louisville, Kentucky by two TV executives, Richard and Dana. Many of the resources that I used for this episode list that Mia was related distantly through her father to Emilio Zapata, who was a leading figure from the Mexican-American Revolution that was from around 1910 to 1920. Growing up, Mia attended a Catholic college prep school called Presentation Academy. She was known to be smart and sensitive. Mia's father describes her in an interview as, quote, very quiet, very reserved, ultra, ultra shy the last person in the world who would call attention to herself and yet put a microphone in her hand, march her up on a stage, and she was just magnetic, end quote. Growing up, Mia was very musically inclined. She had learned to play guitar and piano by age nine, and she also enjoyed other creative avenues like painting and poetry. But again, most of all, Mia was influenced by all types of music. She was influenced by punk, rhythm and blues, jazz, Some of her influences that are listed on the GITS memorial page for her at thegits.com, they list that her influences were the likes of Billie Holiday, Ray Charles, and Hank Williams, just to name a few. After graduating high school in the earlier 80s, Mia enrolled in an old liberal arts school called Antioch College in Ohio. 
One of Mia's friends from Antioch College, Valerie, recalls of her first meeting Mia that, quote, she just commanded respect and interest immediately, end quote. Antioch College is actually also where Mia met her friends Andy, Steve, and Matt. In September of 1986, the quad formed a band. They called themselves the Sniveling Little Rat-Faced Gits, a.k.a. the Gits. I feel like I should know what a Git is, but I have no idea. I felt the exact same way. Don't worry, you're not alone. And I'm sure many of our listeners are wondering what a Git is as well. The term a Git is actually an homage to Monty Python. And it comes from a skit specifically from Monty Python. I put a clip of the skit in the show notes, and I will let it speak for itself. Is your daily grind getting you down? A thermospas hot tub may be the solution. Just a few minutes under those powerful, soothing jets, and all your stress seems to melt away, like you're lying on a cloud of bubbles. You'll not only feel better, but sleep better, too. Call 877-861-4672 now, and for a limited time, save $1,250. Call 877-861-4672 or visit thermospas.com to schedule a free on-site assessment. Imagine a vacation waiting outside your door when you get home. Discover a new way to escape the stress of everyday life. Picture soothing jets massaging your back, relieving all your aches and pains. Sleep soundly without medications or supplements. Call 1-877-861-4672 to get $1,250 in instant savings, including free delivery. Call 877-861-4672 now or visit thermospas.com to schedule a free on-site assessment. So it's the 80s. They're forming a band. I bet it was a wild time for everyone involved. It really was wild for the band and everyone around them. Her friends, Ben and Mark from Antioch College, recall a night at a party where Mia, after a few drinks, jumped on a table and began singing. But what's really cool about this wild moment was that Mark said it, quote, blew everyone away. And Ben recalls that it was, quote, really as if like somebody pulled the plug out of the wall or something. The room kind of stopped, end quote. Ben goes on to say that he believes it was that night that Matt, who would go on to be the bassist of the Gits, noticed Mia and wanted to form a band with her. Again, the Gits were formed in 1986. In 1989, after being together for a while, they moved to Seattle to be part of the emerging grunge music scene. By December, some of the Gits were staying at, quote, a big old rundown house, end quote, that they called the Rat House. And it was situated in Seattle's Capitol Hill neighborhood. The house does still stand and is situated at 19th and Denny. You all know by now that I Google earthed 19th and Denny and found the Rat House. It's right on the corner. I also included a link in the show notes to a YouTube video that the person behind the camera is kind of filming around the perimeter of the Rat House to kind of give viewers a look at what the Rat House looked like. Aside from some of the band members, including Mia, living in the Rat House, they practiced in the basement, and it really became a home base for the band and the venue for their creativity to thrive. Guitarist Andrew is quoted in his interview for the Gits documentaries saying, quote, before there was a band or before there was a show or before there was a rehearsal, there was our friendship and our loyalty to one another, end quote. I like that you included this particular quote because to me, it captures the solid foundation of their friendship. Before they were coworkers, before they were bandmates, they were friends. And it sounds like they really held that close to their hearts and they meant it. They really were friends that became family. They lived together, played music together. 
they were together all the time. Now, Mia was actually the first one of them to get a job after moving to Seattle, and she used to feed them while she was serving at the Frontier Room. She was making about $4.25 when she worked there, which is about $9.50 today. Now, the Frontier Room is in Seattle's Belltown neighborhood. And interestingly enough, one of my best friends and I were in Seattle in 2011 for the week, and we went out at the Frontier Room. It was a lot of fun. Now, Matt, the bassist for the Gits, describes the Frontier Room and what it was like in the 90s. Quote, the toughest dive bar and nastiest greasy spoon restaurant in town, end quote. Now, before I went and before closing in 2014, the Frontier Room had become a popular barbecue restaurant. And with its history in Belltown, it became a must visit when you were visiting Seattle. At any rate, Mia was working there while the band continued to build itself. And guess what? By the fall of 1991, they were playing shows and touring in Europe. Fast forward to 1992, after releasing plenty of singles and EPs, the Gits released their first full-length album, Frenching the Bully. River City Reader described the album as, quote, a stunning document of the talent of singer Mia Zapata, who sings with such conviction, veracity, and expressiveness that the lyrics become irrelevant. The description goes on to say that Mia is a, quote, fiery force who elbowed bandmates off the record. Basically, the sky was the limit for the Gets at this point. It was. That is, until the early morning hours of July 7th, 1993. Backing up a few hours on the night of July 6th, after rehearsing at the Pancreas Production Studio, Mia met up with some of her friends at the Comet Tavern, again in the Capitol Hill neighborhood where they lived and played. Mia stayed out at the Comet Tavern for a couple of hours, and she left there around midnight. Her friend Valerie, who, yes, is also the Valerie from Antioch College, recalls that Mia was in a great mood when she said her goodbyes, and she headed down the street to her friend's apartment at 11th and Pike. Now, the Comet Tavern was on Pike Street as well, and it was situated at Pike and 10th, so it really was just a short walk down Pike to get to her friend's house. So Mia got there quickly, and she stayed there until about 2 a.m. Now, she had possibly been mentioning throughout the night that she was going to try and find this ex-boyfriend and confront him about something. And that's what she told this friend when she left at 2 a.m. that she was going to go do. Now, Mia left on foot, but it's also possible that she was going to try and find a cab, but she would have had to walk to get to the cab station. We don't truly know where Mia went when she left, but what we do know is she never found that ex-boyfriend. After she left, she was never seen alive again. And at 3.20 a.m., just 80 minutes later, her body was found by a sex worker at the intersection of 24th Avenue South and South Washington Street. This intersection is less than half a mile from her friend's apartment that she left. Mia was found on her back, her arms spread out in a T formation, and her feet were closed together. According to Detective Ganyo, who was on the case, he further described the position of Mia's body as, quote, kind of like a crucifix, end quote. It was clear that Mia had been sexually assaulted, beaten, and strangled to death with the strings from the blue Gitz sweatshirt that she was wearing that night. Private investigator Lee Heron, who was hired by the Gitz a few months after Mia was murdered, said in her interview for Forensic Files that Mia was still warm when she was found, and that indicated that she may have only just passed. Because she was found still warm, first responders did try to resuscitate her. At the time that Mia was found, she went unidentified because she didn't have a driver's license or any type of ID on her. In a noteworthy turn, though, the medical examiner was a fan of the Gits and recognized her immediately. 
Remember, this is all in the early morning hours. So the band didn't know what happened to Mia until they finally called the morgue the next morning. The band was super on edge because they had just lost a close friend, Stephanie, who was a member of the band Seven Year Bitch, to a heroin overdose the year before in June of 1992. They were scared that maybe something similar happened to Mia. Hearing this, I'm wondering if Mia had any history of drug use. I want to make it really clear that it's not documented in any of the resources, including the documentary, any of the articles, that Mia used heroin or any drugs besides legal use of alcohol. At the risk of being wrong, I think the band was just super on edge because of the loss of Stephanie and just how rough the music scene could be when it comes to drug use. With that in mind, the band wasn't taking any chances and they started calling around. They started with the hospital. They also called the police. And then they finally decided and mustered up the courage to call the morgue. Drummer Steve recalled for Rolling Stone that the medical examiner said, quote, I'm so sorry. It's your singer. I'm sorry. You should get someone to come down and identify her, end quote. He continues saying, quote, it was a lifelong traumatic moment, end quote. To paint a picture of what was going on for the band around this time, they were really gaining popularity. And in fact, Steve recalled in the documentary that they were really just back in Seattle for a couple of days um, and they were going to be leaving again for a scheduled U.S. tour. That being said, with gaining popularity and notoriety, the community took Mia's loss really hard. Moreover, it meant that Seattle police got flooded with tips of what people thought may have happened to Mia. Unfortunately, there were so many holes in Mia's case, though, and there were a lot of hills to climb in order to solve it. There were no witnesses. So a lot of those tips, again, were speculation of what they thought might have happened or, hey, look into this person or that. And on the topic of looking into this person or that, the ex-boyfriend that I mentioned earlier had an alibi. He was out with friends and the alibi checked out. Detective Gagno called the ex-boyfriend's alibi, quote, airtight, end quote, continuing on saying that, quote, he was eliminated immediately, end quote. So needless to say, the ex-boyfriend hadn't seen Mia that night, even if she was looking for him. Another roadblock in the case was that Mia's body had been left at the location where she was found. She wasn't murdered there. So that meant that there wasn't a lot of evidence that was found at the scene. Prosecutor Tim Bradshaw recalls that it was a frustrating crime due to the lack of evidence. According to Amy Jenigas for Stranger.com, five weeks after Mia's murder, a young woman was walking along 10th Avenue, only a block away from the Comet Tavern. She noticed a car was following her. According to court documents, she was under the impression that maybe the driver was going to offer her a ride or something. It was the 90s after all. It certainly felt like it could have been a normal situation until she noticed that the driver was touching himself. She wrote down the license plate number and got away. That was that with the incident, though. Nothing really came of it that I can find in any of the resources. Meanwhile, in Mia's case, the ME determined, again, that Mia had been sexually assaulted, beaten, and strangled to death. Detective Gagno says that the trauma to Mia's head would have been enough to cause her death in time had she not been strangled. Quote, it was brutal, end quote. What would become one of the most important parts of this case, the medical examiner determined that there was a bite mark on Mia's right breast. A swab of the bite mark was taken in hopes of collecting DNA. The swabs were then tested for presence of amylase, which would prove that there was saliva. After sitting in a Petri dish at 98.6 degrees body heat for 24 hours, proof of saliva and thus DNA was there. Unfortunately, 
the saliva sample wasn't very large and experts weren't sure if it was enough to extract any DNA. You see, PCR testing had just been invented. In fact, the man that invented PCR testing won a Nobel Prize for it in 1993, the same year that Mia was murdered. And yes, the same PCR testing being used today for coronavirus disease testing. At any rate, PCR testing was in its infancy and the experts working Mia's case didn't want to waste the sample. It was all they had. It was all they had. And because of that, they safely stored it in a freezer awaiting PCR testing technology to advance. They needed it to advance to a point where it could detect DNA at microscopic levels. The case unfortunately went a bit cold while it waited though. Lee, the private investigator that the band had hired, came to the same conclusion as police did. It would come down to DNA. Again, like we said, it was all they had. Lee said, quote, It was amazing to me that there was so little evidence. I mean, clearly, there was just nothing there except for one piece of saliva that was found on Mia's breast, and that was it, end quote. Years went by, and in 2001, the swab was finally tested using the PCR testing technology. It worked. They found a mixed profile. It was Mia's and an unknown male. The male's profile was entered into CODIS. There was no match yet. A year later, in 2002, there was a match. This match did come from CODIS, and the hit was to a Jesus Mesquia in Florida. Jesus did have a history of violent crime, and he had been a refugee from Cuba during the Mariel Boatlift, which was a mass exodus of Cubans from the Mariel Harbor to Florida. He was already a felon in Cuba, according to Prosecutor Bradshaw, when he arrived to the U.S. He then promptly gained a rap sheet in Florida. Now, investigators needed to know why he hadn't been arrested in Washington yet if they had his DNA on Mia's body and he had such a rap sheet in Florida. Detectives, of course, wanted to talk to him, and they took the opportunity while he was out of jail and on probation to question him in Marathon, Florida. The Marathon, Florida police cooperated and helped and offered to keep an eye on him until they got there. When the police arrived in Florida, though, Jesus was gone. Luckily, a few days later, he returned. He claimed that he was away for work on a fishing boat. Jesus cooperated and began answering investigators' questions. They showed him five pictures of people that had been murdered in Seattle. He claimed that he didn't know any of them. Mia's look was distinct, though. She was 5'8", and she had blonde dreads with darker roots. At the time Mia was murdered, I believe she had cut her dreads off and had a shorter haircut, though. There's a clip of Mia with shorter brown hair on stage, dedicating a song to Stephanie at the one-year anniversary of her death, which that would have been in later June of 1993, which was just a couple of weeks before Mia's murder. Anyway, like I said, Jesus denied knowing any of the people in the photos. So investigators pressed him by saying, what if we told you you murdered one of these women? Detective Gagno describes in an interview that after that was said, Jesus jumped up and said, quote, no kill, look, no shake showing his hands, that his hands weren't shaking, proving that he wasn't nervous, so he must have not killed any of them. Detectives knew, though, that Jesus had for sure killed Mia at that moment, though. Why? Well, remember, they had his DNA on Mia's body. If he didn't know any of them, why was his DNA on Mia? If he had admitted to knowing her, there may have been some other possible way his DNA got there, but he said he didn't know her. As Detective Gagno put it, Quote, he denied ever having anything to do with her, and the saliva is on her breast. I think the man's got a problem, end quote. A new sample of Jesus's DNA was taken and compared to Mia's, and it was a match again, as expected. 
On January 10th, 2003, Jesus was arrested and charged with first-degree murder of Mia Zapata. Finally, after an entire decade, they had charged somebody with her murder. At the time that Mia was murdered, Jesus was living in Seattle. He lived only three blocks away from where her body was found. Even more, after his arrest, the woman from that suspicious incident, the one who got the license plate number of the car after the stranger exposed himself to her, well, she said that she recognized the man who did that to be Jesus. Investigators were also then able to confirm that, yes, the license plate number from that incident did belong to Jesus. With that in mind, prosecutors hold that Jesus was probably cruising around Seattle when he found Mia walking in the early morning hours. He then abducted her, took her to another location, sexually assaulted her, leaving the bite mark, beat and strangled her. He then took her body to the intersection of 24th and South Washington, where she was later found at 3.20 a.m. His trial began in March of 2004, and after one month and over two days of deliberation, he was found guilty of first-degree murder. He was sentenced to 36 years in prison on April 30th, 2004. His attorneys had requested the more commonly given sentence of 20 to 26 years for first-degree murder. There never was a true explanation given as to why Jesus got 10 more years than the typical. But Judge Sharon Armstrong showed a clear admiration for Mia, expressing that she knew Mia was, quote, extraordinarily vibrant and obviously talented. According to Tracy Johnson, in an article for Seattle Post-Intelligencer, a.k.a. Seattle PI, Judge Armstrong told the courtroom that she was struck by how closely Mia had connected with so many people. Jesus' sentence was overturned in 2005, but it was reinstated again in 2009. Jesus stayed in jail until he died at age 66 in prison on January 21st of 2021. He will never be able to hurt anybody ever again. It's, of course, beyond horrible circumstances, but it's important to note that Mia's case was the first in Washington state to be solved using saliva DNA. Shortly after Mia's death, the Gits did break up, but we know that they still hired that PI and raised money to do so, so they were still banding together just in different new ways. Eventually, they even re-released songs that the Gits had in their discography with Joan Jett on the vocals. They did this in effort to honor Mia and her lyrics, and they hoped to spread awareness to her life and case. They released these songs in 1995, again with Joan Jett on vocals under the name Evil Stig. If you pay close attention, Evil Stig stands for Gits Live Backwards. I want to wrap this episode up with something that Mia once told an Atlantic Records executive. She told him that all she wanted was a cabin in the woods, an old English sheepdog, a Jeep, and to be able to sit and write music. I love that for so many reasons, and it makes me smile because Mia didn't even have a driver's license, but yet she was dreaming of that Jeep. We can only hope that she's driving around in one with her sheepdog sitting passenger side in spirit. For now, her body rests at Cave Hill Cemetery in Louisville, Kentucky, beneath a headstone that reads, Mia Catherine Zapata, cherished daughter, sister, artist, friend, git. Until our next episode, you know where to find us at the Murder Diaries pod on TikTok and Instagram, at the Murder Diaries podcast.com, and the Murder Diaries pod request at gmail.com. And if you haven't already, go ahead and give us five stars. It helps us keep the good content flowing. And until then, stay safe. Bye. Bye. Seeking the truth never gets old. 
Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.